today we're going to be in the Old Testament in Psalms and Ecclesiastes and the book of Job. And we're going to look at something that we spend a lot of our time doing. A lot of our time doing. Especially this time of year. But you know what? Even though we all spend a lot of our time doing it, most of us aren't very good at it. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about waiting. About waiting. And I'm, uh, this is my third time to, to, to present this message, and I'm actually really looking forward to this one the most because I need to hear it again. Because I have struggled with waiting my whole life. I don't know. It's hard to wait. You remember when you were little, maybe as a little child, and you, you want to have a cookie before dinner, and your mom or your dad says to you something like, well, no, not now, but you can have a cookie after dinner. And you break into tears because to you, when we're little, to us, waiting till after dinner, I mean, you might as well tell me I'll never have a cookie again as long as I live. How do I wait all the way to after dinner? After dinner's never going to get here. Mom hasn't even started cooking yet. I've got to wait till after dinner. Later, maybe, maybe you get a little older in high school, and now you can have a cookie whenever you want. But you have new things that you're waiting for. Like, maybe you're waiting for your peach fuzz to turn into whiskers so you can shave like your friends. I'm talking to the guys. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, I hope. <coughs> there was a, I had a friend in high school. Oh, man, this guy could grow the greatest mustache in about five minutes. I, I tried to grow one for about two months, and nobody even noticed. It's, it's sad. But on and on it goes for every stage of life. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. We're waiting for events. We're waiting for outcomes. We're waiting for answers to prayer. <clears throat> I'm sure everybody here is waiting for something as you're sitting here today. Maybe a situation at work. Tough thing going on with your boss. Maybe drama with a coworker or a client and you're wondering and you're waiting, is this going to blow up? How is it going to be resolved? Maybe there's trouble in your family and you're waiting right now to find out what are you going to go home to? What will the holidays be like? Maybe you've been praying for someone to come to Christ for so long, but so far they remain unchanged, unsaved, and you're waiting to see when will their heart soften. Maybe you're waiting to find out about a health issue Change can be upsetting. <clears throat> Maybe there's something new in your life and you're waiting to see, how am I going to cope with this? Is this going to be better or worse? How am I going to deal with this? Some, some of you may have a big decision ahead. It's looming on the horizon and you're not sure yet which way to go. Do you want to do this or do you want to do that? And you've been praying, Lord, help me. And so far to you, you feel like the Lord has been silent. Maybe you have a need in your life <clears throat> that is not being met and it's really weighing on you. You have your good days, you have your bad days. You're waiting now to find out what kind of day will this be and how will you get through. The list of things we wait for is endless. It goes on and on because for every need, for every prayer, there's a period of wait. Sometimes the wait is short. 
I love those times, don't you? When you pray and the wait is short. When I was in college back at Biola, <coughs> wow, I remember it was right before midterms. And the day before midterms, I got so sick. I got the King Kong version of the Hong Kong flu that was going around and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had fever. I had chills. I had the sore throat. Didn't say I was ach- I was, and I'm thinking, I fell into bed that night praying, Lord, how am I going to get through? How, how do I take my tests? Can you help me? Get me somehow, Father, please. <coughs> I think I prayed that. I had a fever. I'm not really sure what I prayed, but I, that's what was on my heart. The next morning, my alarm went off, and I awoke <coughs> to no fever, no pain, no sore throat, no runny nose. I had no residual effects of this flu that was supposed to last a week or more. I had, in one day, I, I had a, a 17 and a half hour flu. I was fine. Didn't even have a runny nose or a cough. And I took those tests. I have no way to explain that other than God answered my prayer quickly. But that's not the way things usually go. That's more of the exception to the rule. I think we wait long periods of time often, and the longer we wait, the harder it gets. You notice that? When you're waiting for something, does it get harder? Waiting can make us feel more anxious, uh, maybe more tired. We don't really realize why we're so tired, but if we think about it, we're tired because we're just waiting for something to happen. Maybe we lose sleep. Maybe we take medication for our nerves or our headaches or upset stomachs. Or we yell at the kids. Is this how life is supposed to be? Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly means rich and satisfying. (coughs) Is that how we would describe our lives today? Some of you might. Are we living rich satisfying, abundant lives? It's hard to tell when you're here in church because we're always on our best behavior here. (laughs) You look around, I mean, you know, everybody's smiling. Those of you who are awake, you're smiling. We try not to show when we're struggling. We don't want people to know if we have doubts or if we feel we're going under. And sometimes we feel a little more lost than we do saved. We don't want to show that at church. Would you like to know the secret to the abundant life in Christ? It's really not a secret because it's written for us in in our our Bibles, but it's not what most people would expect. In God's perfect plan, the plan that he wrote for you and he wrote for me and he wrote for each one of us, the key to an abundant life in Christ is waiting. Waiting upon the Lord. The title of this message is, Can You See Him? Because that's going to be the question that every one of our scriptures are going to ask us. Can we see him? As we go through our daily lives, especially this time of year, do you, do you feel like you're on your own? You're slugging it out on your own? Or can you see God clearly in charge of everything and being sovereign in your life? When your lives get complicated, and honestly, aren't they always getting complicated? What do you see better? Can you see God more clearly or do you see your circumstances more clearly? Let's bow our heads in prayer 
And then we're going to read some passages today that I hope and pray will be eye-opening. Father, your ways are so far above our ways. And you have chosen in your perfect wisdom to keep some things a mystery to us, like your timing and purpose for the things that happen in our lives. We pray for your Holy Spirit to help us accept your mysteries without concern. Please help us see that waiting for you is not a situation to avoid, but a blessing to be grateful for. Because when and where we wait, dear Lord, you meet us there. And when our hearts are willing, we can see you as never before. Please, Father, let us see you more clearly this very hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever wonder how much of your life you actually spend waiting? One website says that on the average we spend six months of our lives waiting in line at a checkout counter, waiting in line for the bathroom, waiting in line at the airport, waiting in line in traffic. Last year I made a huge mistake that I did not make this year, but last year I got talked into going Black Friday shopping on a Thursday. (coughs) And uh, I waited for over an hour to, to get into Target. Target is not typically a store I I would think about waiting to get into, but that night I waited in line over an hour to get in, and once you got in, it's such a madhouse. Wow, you just get, you don't get, you don't go to the aisles you want to go to. You just go to wherever the crowds are pushing you, and you go down the aisle, you fill your basket, then there's another line that's about another hour just to buy your stuff and get out. And then we went to another store. That one, I, I wised up. I didn't even shop. I just told my family, you shop. I'll go right away, stand in the checkout line. That line was not nearly as efficient as Target's, and I think I stood in that line for at least 90 minutes, but I honestly felt like in that line I did my full six-month stretch right there as I waited. Going to the doctor or dentist, you you walk in and all the waiting rooms have all those magazines. That always discourages me because obviously they know I'm going to be there a really long time. Otherwise, they wouldn't have ordered all this material for me to read. And I don't know if this is a scientific fact or not, but it seems like it. I rush to get to the doctor. At the minute I sit down in the chair, time stands still, or at least slows way down. Minutes pass like hours. The only place where it's worse is if you're put on hold. If you go to a doctor and you only have to wait two minutes, this is my lucky day. I only had to wait two minutes. This is great. But if you call somebody and they put you on hold for two minutes, it's forever. Obviously, I've given waiting a lot of thought, and there's a reason for that. It's because in my heart and soul, in my DNA, I am a naturally highly impatient person. Without Christ, I'd be a nervous wreck all the time. In college, I took a psychology personality test. And on this test, I scored a uh, 98 out of 100 in the column of impatience. I got a 98 out of 100 possible score. I think at the time, I don't remember exactly, but I think about a 70 was considered high. I, I got a 98. And I still remember <laughs> Colonel Hatch, my, my professor, uh, when he graded that test, looking over the top of his glasses at me and saying, uh, this is a dangerous score. <laughs> yeah. Jesus has made a huge impact on my life. Without Christ in my life, I would be a dangerously impatient person. But I'm not that way anymore. Praise God. Because 
I've discovered something I'm sure you've all discovered. All of life is a waiting room. We're all waiting. God's most common answer to our prayer is not an immediate yes or an immediate no. It's wait. The book of Psalms, it's where we're going to start. We can learn a lot about waiting in the book of Psalms. Psalm 27. One verse. It's a really powerful verse. Psalm 27, 14. By the way, love the sound of all the pages turning. But it occurred to me the other day, you know what? Because some of you guys have your tablets and stuff. That's the future. It's all going to be tablet-based. So what we're going to have to do in the tech booth is they're going to have to record this sound of the pages turning. So when we turn to a verse, we still get to hear that. Because otherwise, it's turn to your Bibles too and you just hear nothing. So that's a great sound. Psalm 27:14 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So what does it mean to wait for the Lord. We have to understand that. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? Let's talk about what it does not mean. Waiting for the Lord does not mean that we suffer quietly and we try to hide it. Waiting for the Lord does not mean you, you, you grit your teeth and you feel like you're every minute hanging on by your fingernails until this wretched waiting period is over. That's not what waiting on the Lord looks like or feels like. And waiting on the Lord does not mean we ignore our emotions that are stirred up and pretend like we're okay. This word wait means an eager and patient anticipation. To wait on the Lord is an eager and patient anticipation. When we wait for the Lord, you know what we're doing? We're trusting that God knows what to do. Even when we cannot figure out what's going on. Sometimes life gets like that, doesn't it? You're lost, and why is this happening? We understand that Almighty God has wisdom and knowledge and purpose that we cannot possibly fathom, and that's okay with us. So we can wait patiently, and yes, even gladly, for his outcome. Verse 14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. By repeating this phrase, and wait for the Lord, twice, it adds emphasis. And you know what that means? This is so good. It means, with this added emphasis, expect new measures of help help to come. Expect new measures of help to come. In other words, when we wait for God, more help is coming than we can possibly realize. And we can count on it. Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 7 says... Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. That's just the first part of Psalm 37. Rest in the Lord. This word rest can also be translated be still or be silent to the Lord. You know what it means? This is great. It means relax, don't react. When we wait on the Lord, we relax. We don't react. This is not talking about our natural reactions. We have emotions. We're emotional creatures. God made us that way. He gave us our emotions. So, Natural things. We can feel sorrow. We can feel loss. We can feel disappointment. Those are natural. This psalm is not saying don't have those feelings because that's what we have. The reactions the psalm is warning us against are rash reactions. As we wait for the Lord, we don't need to get anger, angry, get bitter. We don't need to lash out, fly off the handle, question and fight against God. 
sometimes if you're like me, your reaction doesn't necessarily measure up to the size of the problem. You overreact, or I overreact. Waiting on the Lord means that we're watching Him because we've learned that He is our only hope. He is magnificent. We keep our eyes on Him, and the longer we gaze at Him, the less time we are spending looking at ourselves and our own situation. I know a woman uh, whose husband passed away some time ago, and he died way before his time. And this couple, they were the perfect couple. Not only did they love the Lord, not only had they been married for long, they worked together in their careers. In fact, his desk faced her desk. They were face-to-face, day in, day out in their careers, and they loved working together. They were inseparable. And then then he passed away. She was devastated, obviously, devastated. Do you know what she said to me? I'll never forget it. In her grief, she said this. She said, my antenna is up because I want to see what the Lord has next for me and I don't want to miss it. That's what waiting on the Lord looks like. Waiting for the Lord also means we understand what makes the world go around. If you're in Psalms right now, that's good because you're in the neighborhood of Ecclesiastes, and that's where we're going next. There's Psalms, then there's Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. We're going to go to chapter 3. King Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes somewhere before he died in 931 B.C. This book became really popular, though, in 1965 when a folk rock band, The Birds, recorded that song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Remember that one? Uh, Or it's also called To Everything There Is a Season. That song topped our charts in that year, 1965, and it holds the distinction as the number one hit recorded with the oldest lyrics ever because it's based almost exclusively on Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that was written somewhere around 900 B.C. We only need to look at the first verse. It says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Ecclesiastes is telling us there's a master plan. There is a master plan that has set up everything that's going to happen under heaven where we live. Everything. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Okay, there's a plan. The Bible says so. Who controls that plan? Do we? No, we just act like it. The Lord controls the plan. Here's the next question. It's an honest question, so just think about this. Is that good news to you that God is in command, in charge, that you should give him everything, you should trust him? Is that good news? Some of us may be struggling with that idea, like I did when I was younger, because if we're really honest, we've read about the Lord, we've heard about the Lord, We believe in the Lord, but we've never seen him. And it's hard, maybe, to fully trust someone we've never seen. It's hard enough to trust people we can see. Haven't you ever kind of put your faith in somebody you thought was a sure thing and they let you down? Yeah, so we worry, God, I, I can't even see you. But the Lord wants us to trust him, even though we can't see him. Do you know why God wants us to trust him? God wants us to trust him because it's the only way we can see him. 
the only way we can see him. If you have Ecclesiastes open, you're, you're very close to Job. Job is three books back the other way. It's right before Psalms, the book of Job. Job lived a long, long time ago. He had a large family and many possessions. He was healthy. He was wealthy. He was wise. He was a godly man. But Satan was sure that Job only served the Lord because God blessed him. So <coughs> Satan came to God and said, let me prove to you that your servant Job there is just a fair-weather servant. You know, take away his prosperity in you. Take away his faith in you. So uh, Job, nine, uh, Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 12 says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, what happens next is a period of one day. One day. Satan sent fire. He sent robbers. He sent enemies to burn, destroy, carry away all of Job's earthly possessions. And one day Job lost it all. What's worse is all of Job's children were together in one house and a tornado, big wind hit that house. It fell. All of his children died. On this day, on this one day, servant after servant came up to Job with terrible news. These servants were eyewitnesses to these events and they were the sole survivors. Can you picture what that had to be like for Job? You're standing there and servant after servant is running up to you. They're probably battered and bloody. They're probably sweating and out of breath from their long run to get to you. And they're scared to death to tell their master terrible news, one after another after another, left him in ruin. He was devastated. Job was reeling. Job had no idea why this was happening. We have our Bibles. We can read what was going on in heaven. Job didn't have the Bible. Job did not understand that Satan was using him to try to embarrass God. Job was shattered and he was overwhelmed, but he did not curse the Lord as Satan had predicted. So Satan paid a second visit to God. We find that in chapter 2 of Job, verses 4 to 7. Satan speaks again and says, Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. So now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Satan did a number on Job, covered him inch for inch with boils all over his body from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. There was not any place that Job could find rest. He couldn't walk. He couldn't stand. He couldn't move. He couldn't kneel, sit down, lay down, curl up. No position could he get in. He couldn't even comb his hair without putting pressure on these painful, painful sores. And as you read through the rest of the book, Satan did more to Job than just that. Let me just give you the list. Okay, boils everywhere that were inflamed and draining. That's bad. He also had itching. 
Satan hit Job with a drastic change in his appearance so that his friends didn't even recognize him. Job had incredible pain in his bones. Job's skin turned black and he had a fever. He was miserable, but his condition wasn't terminal. So he lived on and waited for the Lord to explain to him. He was waiting on the Lord to explain why. That's what most of this book deals with. It's the question of why. Why do bad things happen to good people? Job wanted to know what he had done to deserve this from the Lord. Lord, tell me what I did. Why are you doing this to me? He's not sinning. He's questioning. Job's wife finally had enough. Remember, she lost everything too. We read about her in chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. Job's wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? (laughs) What a question for a wife to ask her husband, isn't it? Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Job replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin with what he said. Job would not curse God as Satan had predicted. So Job sat in misery. And just when he thought things couldn't get any worse, his friends showed up. Job had these friends that came to comfort him. Problem is, his friends were lousy, incompetent comforters. They comforted Job by analyzing Job's suffering, and they looked for causes and solutions. What caused this, Job, and how are we going to fix it? Their theology, their understanding of God was way off base, and their insights were dim and blurry. All they offered Job was a bunch of useless, wrong ideas. God rebukes these friends at the end of the book. By the way, this is a reminder for you and for me. We have to be so careful when we comfort people not to put words in God's mouth and not to try to explain to them events in their lives that God has not explained himself. When we get to chapter 38, the Lord finally speaks to Job. And when God speaks, you know what? God does not explain himself. God never tells Job why he suffered. Instead, God does something much greater and much more kind for Job and for us. God did not explain himself. God revealed himself. Job had not sinned in what he said, but he had been questioning God. Can we blame him? What's all this about, Lord? Why has my life come to that? What in your divine plan is being served by me going through this? So after the Lord had listened to Job ask him question after question, now was the Lord's turn, and God had some questions for Job. Job chapter 38, verse 4, the Lord says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. God's point? A finite creature like Job, like you, like me, cannot possibly fathom the infinite wisdom of of the Creator. We cannot fathom God. Look at verse 12 of chapter 38. God says, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? 
these questions from God go on for four chapters. If you want to have some powerful and actually somewhat entertaining reading, read these four chapters when you go home. Because God's not only talking about the big thing he knows, he also says, God also says he knows when the ram has a baby ram out in the wilderness. God knows every detail. His knowledge is unlimited. God never told Job why he suffered. He never told him. Instead, the Lord revealed his perfect will and perfect plan and wisdom and sovereignty in such a way that Job could not miss it. So in the last chapter, chapter 42, Job finally answers the Lord. All this time, Job did a wonderful thing. He put his hand over his mouth while the Lord spoke. He covered his lips. He did not want to answer back to God. He listened. And now he gets to speak. And now we're going to read some of the most humble, heartfelt words in the Bible. And we need to understand, before Job answered the Lord, he still did not know why he suffered. God never told him. Job was still sick with disease. He still had those boils. He was still mourning the loss of all of his possessions and his children. But something had changed for Job. Something big had changed for Job. He stopped questioning God. Look what he said, chapter 42, 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job bowed in humble submission to the Lord where he realized something we have to realize. It's wrong. It's foolish. Honestly, it's pointless to question God. The Lord who is right and true in all that he does. It's hard for us. It's hard for me because we all have flaws and weaknesses and even the best of us can make mistakes and we can fail. But the Lord has no weaknesses. He has no flaws. God Almighty cannot fail. God is never wrong. God is never late. He's never unwise. He's never misinformed. He's never uncaring. Whatever God allows to happen in our lives is right. Because God is always right. Even if we can't see it that way. Just because we don't understand what God is doing doesn't mean that God is unfair or cruel or indifferent. We get into trouble ourselves when we try to explain what God has not explained to us. In chapter 42, Job had lost everything. He only had one thing left. One thing. God, the Lord. And look. Look what Job said about that. This verse is one you should star, circle, put on your refrigerator, memorize. Job 42.5. Job had lost everything and he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job says, I've heard of you by the hearing of my ear. Yeah, Job had heard about God. He had heard all about his attributes, but hearing is not the same as seeing. Job had knowledge about God. He believed God. He served God. But he had never really seen God until right now, at this moment. Job said, but now my eye sees you. Not his physical eye, but his eye of faith. He saw him with his eye of faith. What does that mean? It means Job never so well grasped the greatness of God as he did in that moment. Suddenly God was not invisible. 
And all of those wonderful attributes Job had always heard about God, his perfect plan, his perfect wisdom, his perfect sovereignty, was as clear to Job in that moment as if God was standing right in front of him. Can we see the Lord like that? If you know the story of Job, then you know it ends with God blessing Job and giving him back everything twofold. He had more wealth, more children, longer life, health, and prosperity than he had before. But by now, by the time the, by the, time the blessings came pouring in, Job already had what he needed. He had seen the Lord. By losing everything, Job found something he couldn't, couldn't possibly imagine. He saw God. Pastor John's dear, dear friend Hutch went home to be with the Lord a short time ago. But Hutch always said, Jesus is all you need, but you won't realize that until Jesus is all you've got. Jesus is all you need, but you can't realize it until Jesus is all you've got. That's what Job discovered. The Lord was all he needed, but he didn't realize that until the Lord was all he had. I've been looking into your faces as I've been talking about this, and I can tell, I know, many of you know exactly what this passage is talking about. Because you have suffered great loss. And in that time of loss, you realized all you had was Jesus. And in that moment, you knew for certain he's all you ever needed. There's no doubt. If you're here today and you have never put your faith in Christ and you have questions about that, we would love to try to answer your questions anytime you're available. I was talking with somebody at work the other day and he said, people don't really want to hear just about God anymore. They want other options. Times are changing. I don't think that's much of a newsflash for us or for God. The times are changing. We know times are changing. But God never changes with the times. Maybe that's the newsflash. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, forever. Listen to Isaiah 30, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust, waiting, is your strength. But you would have none of it. The Lord wants us to see him. He wants us to wait for him so he can give us his peace, his rest. He wants to give us that. But he also allows us, if we want to, to look elsewhere, to look to ourselves, to look to somebody else, and do things our own way. For the believer, if we do not wait on the Lord, we don't lose our salvation. We just lose the blessing. I always know I always know <laughs> when I'm doing things my way instead of waiting for the Lord. I always know because I have stress instead of rest. I'm anxious about the outcome instead of content and confident. And I feel tired. I get worn down instead of feeling the strength in the Lord. When I take my eyes off the Lord, I, I feel it physically, and it must show because other people will I'll walk into a room and somebody will ask me, what's the matter? Must show. God, God did not build us to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. 
That's what his shoulders are for. We started this message with two psalms. Let's end with two psalms. We're going to go to Psalm 145. This is going to sound like a setup for a joke, but it isn't. (laughs) It's true. Here in Anaheim Hills, we set our watches by Pacific time. In New York, they set their clock by Eastern time. What time zone does God work in? There's a specific time zone that God works in, and it tells us in the Bible. Psalm 145, verse 15, tells us the time zone God works in. I'll read it to you. The eyes of all look to you, to the Lord, and you give them their food, meaning God gives us whatever we need at the proper time. At the proper time. God works in the proper time zone. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly when we need it. And he is faithful to provide it exactly as he said he would. When we wait for the Lord, we can relax, we can enjoy life, and yes, that's where the abundant life lives, is in the proper time zone. Where we're not trying to push and pull, we're watching God. Everything happens exactly as it's supposed to. Just to be clear, the Bible doesn't say everything will happen the way we want it to happen. But it does promise everything will happen the way he wants it to happen. And that's fine by me. When I was younger, I couldn't have said that. But it is now. It's fine. Psalm 130, verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his soul, in his word, I put my hope. When we wait for the Lord, our whole being waits. Some translate translate this whole being as soul. What does it mean? It means we are fully engaged. We are all in. When we wait for the Lord, we don't have one toe with him and kind of one toe in our day. Trusting him now, coming back, no, we're all in. This gets tough, but it means that we give Lord our wants and our needs. We give him our hopes. We give him our dreams. We give him our plans and even our schedules. I'm a schedule-oriented guy. Lord, here's what I'm going to do Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, Monday. I have my schedule laid out, and it really bugs me when my schedule gets interrupted. But I have to give my, if I want rest, I have to even give the Lord my schedule. Lord, I really plan on going to bed early. Oh, I see you're not going to let me go to bed early tonight. Praise you, Lord. Thank you. Okay, I'll wait to see what that's all about. Schedules. We give Lord God our mornings, our afternoons, our evenings. We give God everything we have, everything we are, and we hand over to him everything we hope to be. And in return, he gives us himself so that we can see him. And in his word, I put my hope. God is... (laughs) God has not written down everything we want to know, but he has written down everything we need to know. And in his word, we can put our hope for certain because God's word cannot fail. C.H. McIntosh was a preacher that lived in the 1800s. This is something he wrote hundreds of years ago. But listen, it sounds like he could have written this today. Let me read it to you. It says, Faith raises our soul above our difficulties. I'm going to read you that one again because it's just so good. Faith raises our soul above our difficulties straight to God himself. And our faith enables us to stand still and wait for him. We gain nothing by our restless and anxious efforts. It is therefore true wisdom 
in all times of difficulty and perplexity to stand still, to wait only upon God. And he will assuredly open a way for us. Are you and I waiting on the Lord like that today? Can you see him? If you can't, it means you may have to let go of whatever is blocking your view. I don't know what that is for you. I know what it is for me. Maybe something you'll have to let go. There was a man named A.W. Tozer who was a self-taught pastor. And he went home to be with the Lord in the early 1960s, but his books and his articles are amazing. Tozer once said, the person that has God as his treasure has all things in one. person who has God as his treasure has all things in one. That's like what Hutch said. Jesus is all you need, but you won't realize it until Jesus is all you've got. And it's what Job said when he said, I've heard of you, Lord, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I'd like to close this in prayer a little differently. I want to close this in a prayer that is written by Tozer. I'd like to read it to you, and I hope this will be the prayer of your heart. This prayer that I I found um, is the most eloquent and honest prayer I've ever read outside of Scripture. It expresses the heart of someone who knows who they are. They're weak. They're not nearly what God wants them to be. But this is a person who wants to see the Lord and grow closer and more like the Lord every day. So I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and pray these words along with me. And when we're finished with this prayer and we dismiss, if you would like prayer for something in your life, our prayer team is going to be right over here and they will pray with you today. Let's bow our heads. O God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully aware of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We serve an awesome God.